And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it is the last week of September, getting ready to wrap it up, the seasonally wheat period of the year. And of course, uh, that gets us into the end of the year push, which tends to be a little bit more positive for markets. We'll talk about that this morning. But good news out this morning, the WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America, has tentatively reached an agreement to end the writer's strike in Hollywood. Thank goodness. Maybe we can now get something worth watching on television. <laughs> And of course, much bigger news last night, of course, uh, yesterday was the Chiefs win, right? And uh, even the Chiefs announced that this has started a whole new era because Taylor Swift was at the concert. It's nice to see that she actually visits the venue in the off season. So, <laughs> but the whole game last night was like pictures. The cameraman was like constantly swinging over to Taylor Swift's seat. <laughs> So, uh, anyway, so everybody was very excited that That's she was just at the game. That's just creepy. I know, but you know, you you know, know? what? She is, so, she is so famous now. It is actually estimated that between her and Beyonce, um, who grew up here in Houston, by the yeah, way, yeah. Um, that they actually added like three-tenths of a tick to GDP. So many people are spending money going to <laughs> wow. see these concerts. They are, they are literally adding uh -huh. to GDP. I mean, but, you know, look at it. She's, she's packing stadiums at $1,500 a ticket. So you think you've got inflation in food? Mm -hmm. Try to go get a Taylor mm -hmm. Swift ticket. So Plus the Ticketmaster fees. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but I mean... Yeah, I mean you can't deny she is she has reached that stage where she is just a, a headline. But anyway, the Chiefs actually announced their win last night with a picture, not a picture of <laughs> Travis Kelsey, no picture of Taylor Swift and the score uh, by the NFL. So there you go. Anyway, you you ha you know you have made it at that point when Taylor Swift yeah. shows up for your game. Yeah, <laughs> you have you have done it. So if you get Taylor Swift to your house, you're there. Anyway. Uh, a couple other things uh, as, as we kind of start to look forward this week. As we get ready to start kind of wrapping up this month, and again, we're now getting ready to kick off earnings season for Q3. So we're going to be looking at you know, what the earnings over the summer look like for companies. Uh, the big question, of course, is can they maintain profit margins in, you know, in an environment where inflation is coming down? So you've had inflation go from 9% to 3%. And that's going to potentially weigh on profit margins. So one of the big kind of things to look at um, in this earnings season coming up is not just the earnings, but as always the quality of the earnings, but whether or not these companies are able to maintain their profit margins. This is going to be kind of the, the big question. And, and again, because profit margins have been very elevated over the last couple of years because of shutting down the economy and just throwing money at the markets. Everybody was out buying stuff, and so companies were able to build these massive profit margins. The question is whether or not they're going to be able to maintain those profit margins going forward. So that's going to really kind of be the key focus uh, once we get into earnings season starting October the 1st. Um, outside of that, you know, economic data is going to be pretty weak here over the course of the day. I mean, not pretty weak in terms of being weak, but not a lot of it. 
uh, over the next week or so as we get ready to wrap up the month. And of course, once we get into October, we'll start getting the next CPI reports, the next employment reports and have something kind of to gauge on uh, whether or not the Fed will be wronger for longer, which is going to be the, the big question. Uh, will they hike rates in November? Will they hike rates in December? Um, but at some point, we're now getting to the end of those rate hikes. The question is whether or not that's going to win, and it's really not a question of the if, but just the when that data is going to start showing up in the numbers of higher unemployment, weaker economic growth. That's just a function of time here. Um, so we'll see, you know, kind of over the next couple of weeks, if we're going to start seeing some of that weakness show up potentially in this October data. So again, not a lot here to uh, royal the markets this week. No big real, no big real announcements. Uh, but starting the first week of October, we'll start having uh, some market moving data coming back in. But speaking of market moving data, Here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, the S&P uh, closed down a little bit on Friday, uh, chopped around most of the day, spent most of the day in positive territory, was doing okay, sold off at the end of the day on Friday, did close down, but holding support here going back to these June lows. So we're still within this kind of a, a topping pattern for the market, and that's something certainly worth paying attention to. Um, you know, potentially got a little bit of a head and shoulders forming here as well. So if the market can't get this together here over the next few days and hold the support, there's real risk here. We're going to test the 200-day moving average uh, on the S&P. That's around 41.80 right now on the S&P. So there's certainly some downside risk here in the short term. Now, having said that, though, um, the MACD sell signal is very weak here, and we're at very fairly low levels on that MACD sell signal. And again, not surprising here, we're in the seasonally weak period of the year, August, September in particular, tend to be weak. And that's actually been what we have, have experienced here over the last month or so, is this kind of weakness in the market uh, in, in September. Um, this is really kind of pushing lower levels. We're very oversold on a short-term basis as well. So this is all kind of a good setup here. Potentially, now this is going to be key, the markets are going to have to hold here, turn up and start to make some advances here, uh, you know, kind of build in this support, uh, again, this retest of this, this support, turn this back into a, a rising trend in prices. But if we can turn this MACD buy signal, which we will eventually, turn it back onto a buy signal and start to bring up this oversold condition of the market, that should align itself with the typical seasonal strength of the market in October, November, December. So the setup technically is actually pretty good right now, being oversold here at the, at the end of this period. And so what we're looking for here to now tell us that we're entering into the seasonally strong period will be for this MACD signal to turn positive and give us a buy signal. So when we get this buy signal, that will be the indication we have now entered into the seasonally strong period of the year uh, through the end of this year. Now, once we get into January, February, March of next year, that's too far out to predict anything with any type of reasonable um, you know, uh, accuracy. But over the course of the next couple of months, if we can get this kind of uh, setup here technically that we're looking for, that could give us a push into the end of the year again. But I don't want you to dismiss the fact that we do have some pretty important levels of support here that have to hold. Otherwise, we could see lower prices here before we get that rally. So there is some downside risk here in the short term. So certainly don't move away from any type of risk management in your portfolio um, because there is certainly some downside risk here short term. But again, we're kind of getting set up here and we've had such sloppy trading now over the last month and a half 
that we're due for a fairly sustained rally here, at least for a month or so. Again, as we've talked about before, markets go through these buying and selling stampedes, and we had a buying stampede that ran all through June and July. So this August-September period has been kind of a selling uh, basis for the markets, working off some of that exuberance that we saw back in June and July. So we're now getting set up again for another potential uh, buying stampede. But that's the way the market works. It kind of ebbs and it flows. So again, don't dismiss the fact we do have some downside risk here. could certainly show up this week as this is still in the month of September. But whatever weakness we get here will likely set us up for a better October, November. So just kind of keep your risk management accordingly. But that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. All right, so when we come back from the break, 25 years ago today, something very important happened. And we'll actually talk about that um, in particular because it kind of set the basis for this too big to fail. And again, as we kind of look back in history, we can always see kind of where things start and then we can evaluate them to where we are today. So again, going back in history, very important event that kind of started the premise of how the Federal Reserve has been responding to things really ever since then. I'm Real Science Roberts, You're listening to The Real Investment Show. We'll be right back after the break. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So 25 years ago, technically it was it was yesterday, but since I wasn't on the radio show yesterday, it's today. <laughs> but 25 years ago, you know, something happened, and, and I remember this personally because I, you know, I was around, you know, then we were we were run, we were managing money at the time, and you know, this was a big moment, kind of, you know, in the financial markets for Wall Street, and something that's you know, most many investors today don't remember at all. They weren't even born at the time. And of investors that were born at the time, it, it, you know, it didn't really make, it wasn't on the media all day long every day, right? It was just, we didn't, uh, you know, CNBC was just really kind of first starting, at, you know, back then. And, you know, so it wasn't this mainstream 24 hours a day headline news of when, you know, the, the Federal Reserve was fixing a problem. Most Americans didn't even know about it. But 25 years ago, there were two Nobel laureates that thought they were pretty smart. <laughs> and uh, one was an economist and one was a famous bond trader. And uh, they received a, well, they, they started with $100 million and they started this little fund that was going to invest in the bond market. And their fund delivered a 20%, uh, 21% net return its first year, 43% in the second year, 41% in the third. And they were doing great. They were killing it. And this uh, fund that they, they had, they used a lot of leverage in the fund to create those returns. And, of course, everything is going fine and dandy. 
until Japan cut interest rates to zero. And, of course, they, they then subsequently started the initial, they were the first ones to do quantitative easing uh, back then. You know, so it was all fun and, and fine and dandy until between the Fed hiking rates in 1995. And, again, we've talked about this before. You know, we have every time the Fed has hiked interest rates, historically, something breaks whether it was the bond market in 1994, whether you created the portfolio insurance crash in 1987, or you know the Asian contagion, or in this case, the failure of long-term capital management. And so that was when, very quietly behind the scenes at the time, and again, we in the financial markets were watching this go on because everybody was kind of shocked and amazed at how this could have happened, but the Federal Reserve stepped in with a $3.65 billion bailout uh, that was strung together by 14 financial institutions, you know, kind of really at the behest of the Federal Reserve. And this started, this provided the basis for too big to fail. The reason they were bailed out at the time is everybody was scared to death that that was going to roil the bond market and the financial markets and create this kind of systemic event. And so it had to be shored up. So long-term capital management was bailed out, closed, taken over, and it went away. Since then, this has now become the regular solution. That when there's a company of size that... It's going to have an impact on the economy. We can't have that, right? We, we can't have a recession to speak of. And so we continue to kind of bail things out one way or the other. And it, and it spread from the bank. So in 2008, right, we start bailing out the banks and the mortgage companies because we're worried about their systemic hold on the economy. They were too big to fail, right? And then in 2020, we moved it to actually bailing out corporations, right? We bailed out Boeing and others. And the problem with it is, is always the case is that it undermines the very basis of capitalism when you do that. I mean, the whole point of capitalism is that it's Darwinistic in nature. The, the, you know, the strong survive, the weak perish. And if you mismanage your company and you get into financial trouble, then you have to file for bankruptcy. And again, you know, we, we've, we've developed this anathema for the word bankruptcy. It's like, oh, it's a terrible thing. If Boeing goes bankrupt, it'll just destroy the country. No, no, it won't. I mean, there's various forms of bankruptcy, right? I mean, there is the bankruptcy that would be bad for the economy, and that's the, that's the form of bankruptcy where basically the company just shutters the doors and no longer makes planes and, you know, lays off, you know, tens of thousands of employees. That's, that's a bad bankruptcy, right? But that's just a, a company that's no longer a going business concern. In other words, we've moved on from airplanes Nobody wants Boeing's airplanes for whatever reason. And so they don't have a business, so they shut down. The other business type bankruptcy is the bankruptcy that, that Boeing should have probably gone through, 
previously or other companies that needed bailouts, Royal Caribbean, others. And that's just the reorganization bankruptcy. And that's where they've taken on too much debt. They didn't hold enough cash. They spent all their money doing buybacks instead to boost share value and to you know, increase executive compensation. So they didn't, they didn't manage their risk correctly. And so they go through a business bankruptcy. They go through a reorganizational bankruptcy. And this is where shareholders basically get wiped out. And debt holders get kind of refixed a bit. Uh, they take a discount on the debt that they've loaned to, to Boeing. There's a negotiation. The company then reorganizes itself, and it comes out of bankruptcy. Still making planes. There's the, the jobs are still there for the most part. Maybe they have to lay off a, you know, a few, some of their workers because they had some excess hiring that they didn't really need. They had what, what the government would call non-essential workers. And so maybe those lose, maybe those individuals lose their job, but the company comes out of bankruptcy, continues operations, and hopefully learned a lesson and doesn't repeat the previous sins of the father. But that allows for a better economic outcome for the economy because, again, going through bankruptcy is a bad thing for companies and they don't want to do that. Generally, the CEO loses their job when a company goes through a bankruptcy, so the guy doesn't want to do that. So maybe if we stop bailing out these companies, whether it's a bank, and we'll talk about a bank in a second, or a major company, maybe we stop bailing them out, maybe we would get better behavior out of the executive members. A little bit more prudent management so that when you had an economic downturn or recession, they weren't being forced into bankruptcy. But Lance, we can't allow a bank to go bankrupt because that would be terrible. Well, think about it. Is it? Let's pick a big bank, J.P. Morgan. Let's say J.P. Morgan got on the ropes and took on too much leverage, too much debt, got themselves in trouble. J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon loses his job. Company goes through reorganization. Again, same, same outcome. J.P. Morgan doesn't go away. Shareholders get whacked, debt holders take a lick, but the company comes out, reorganizes, gets a new CEO, doesn't do what they did before. Or let's call it worst case scenario, let's say that uh, J.P. Morgan literally fails. It's a Lehman moment. J.P. Morgan fails, huge bank. It would certainly be a major financial impact to the economy. Terrible event, no doubt. But what would happen? Government would step in, you break up the bank. Instead of having J.P. Morgan, you've got J.P. Morgan now spread out across the country of, along with all the regional mid, mid-sized banks picking up customers, picking up accounts. All the accounts are transferred to another, another bank. Business keeps, business keeps going. Businesses keep operating. And if you had allowed... For that to occur in 2008, instead of bailing out these banks, we would have a more diversified banking system. Would it have sucked for a couple of years? Absolutely. But we would have a healthier banking system. And despite the fact of what the media tells you, like, oh, banks are all well capitalized. Great. If banks are so well capitalized, how come we have to keep bailing them out every single time we have a downturn? We just had to, to organize a bailout between Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank back in March. 
But every time we have a downturn, we're having to bail out banks. So if they're so well capitalized, why do we have to keep bailing them out? They're not well capitalized. So maybe we should go back 25 years, relearn our lessons of what we started 25 years ago, and maybe think about doing things differently in the future. I know that's, a, that's kind of a pipe dream because that'll never happen because bailouts are now the easiest process. Simply print up some money, we bail out a bank, we continue bad behavior, but we don't really solve any problems and we're not making the financial system more secure, which is really the problem at the end of the day is that our financial system is becoming weaker, not stronger. And it continues to distort the very basis of capitalism and it continues to distort the very basis of how the financial system should work for the benefit of all Americans rather than just the few. But this is why you have so many people calling for the end of capitalism. They want socialism. They want communism. They want other forms of, of society because they know that capitalism isn't working the way it's supposed to. And they're just wanting to try something else. And I get it. You don't want those other choices. They make things worse. But maybe we need to stop doing what we're doing that's making capitalism worse. All right, be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so welcome back to the show this morning so again as we uh, you know as we kind of think about you know the things that we do you know, historically, and again, we, we've developed this, uh, as I was saying, these kind of bad behaviors, and, and I shouldn't say bad behaviors, they're just, they're just the, the bad responses. You know, we, we don't want to suffer the pain, right? We don't want to deal with the, the pain of a recession or a failure of a major company. And, and again, this really kind of started from the, the political side of the aisle as well, which is, oh my gosh, you know, we can't have, you know, that, that would just be terrible if a major company went bankrupt and we developed this whole idea of too big to fail. And again, there's nothing wrong with failure. It cleanses the economy. You know, we, we talked about forest fires and, you know, we have forest fires in California and they're terrible things. But the reason that they have gotten worse in recent years is because of poor forest management. They passed rules and regulations about forest management that, that has led to worse outcomes. And fires are a good thing. Forest fires are, you know, we, we look at them, we go, forest fires are a terrible thing because they destroy, you know, trees and homes and, you know, things like that. And, and we go, those are terrible things. But actually, forest fires are good things. They, they clean out the brush. They 
create fertilization for the soil and allows for the forest to be more healthy in the future. And it's just kind of it's, it's kind of like anything else with you know herd population, right? If if you want to you know raise a a, a population or a herd, you know you have to cull the herd every now and then because if they get it's like deer hunting, right? The reason that we hunt deer is because they breed so rapidly that, you know, uh, uh, hunting them um, culls the herd a bit and allows them to be a healthier population. Now, of course, you can overhunt something, right? Obviously. Um, and we don't want to do that. That that makes them an endangered species. But there is a, a healthy process of culling herds. Forest fires are healthy. But we've adopted this attitude in the economy that we can't have a big company fail. That would just be terrible. We just don't want to deal with it. This is why we don't want to deal with Social Security, right? We know everybody knows if you're a living, breathing American that's paying into Social Security, you know there's a potential problem. In fact, you know, I talk, I even talk to, to, to younger people and they're like, I'm, I'm not ever going to get Social Security. It's not going to be there when I get there. And that's a general attitude. And we all know that coming up and 2030, 2033, 2035, somewhere in there. The vast majority of the programs will be virtually bankrupt, right? And we're talking about having to give, you know, payment cuts to seniors. But it doesn't have to be that way, right? But nobody wants to deal with the problem today because nobody wants to sacrifice. Don't touch my Social Security. Don't raise my retirement age. Don't make me pay more into it. So we all know that there's a clear problem sitting out there. It's a $70 trillion unfunded liability. And we know that's sitting out there, but we don't want to deal with it. And it's politically unelectable, so nobody wants to touch it. Now, eventually, it'll show up on your doorstep, and we'll have to figure something out. And it'll be, you know, some type of dramatic, you know, bailout, push, whatever it is. But whatever we eventually do to solve the problem will be done under a moment of force, just, just like we deal with debt ceilings, right? We don't, we don't, you know, everybody knows a debt ceiling's coming up in the next two years, right? So as we push it out past the election. We got a government shutdown right around the corner. We know these things are coming up. But instead of, you know, saying, hey, you know, in uh, six months or so, we're going to have to deal with this debt ceiling, why don't we start, you know, taking a few little nibbles at it now, right? <laughs> and work on it as we approach that deadline. But no, we have to wait until literally the 12th hour so that we're all working under maximum pressure and that way everybody caves and we just, you know, because nobody wants to deal with it, right? Nobody wants to hike taxes. Nobody wants to cut spending. Nobody really wants to do any of that. So we just keep kicking it off down the road. Now, eventually at some point, there will be some poor sucker in Congress that has to deal with it. Everybody's just hoping it's not on their watch, right? It's going to be on somebody else's watch when that occurs. But, but again, this is, this is the problem. And, and so the reason that you know, we talk about these things is that they're evident. But while there's a lot of hand-wringing and teeth-gnashing about this, and, and again, these aren't new topics, Right? Oh, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be doomed. It's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow, right? And so, you know, when I want you to be careful when you watch videos and and stuff on YouTube or wherever else, because y'all send it to me. Stop it. 
<laughs> Stop sending me stuff. Go, well, what do you think about this guy? I don't care. I do my own research. But you have to understand is that, yeah, there's, there's real problems out there, but it may be 10, 20, 30 years from now, 40 years, 50 years, because we can kick that can down the road a lot further than you think. And just because there's a tick in one direction or the other and an interest rate or oil prices doesn't mean the world's about to end. The recent uptick in oil prices, yes, it's been very, very sharp. Right? No doubt about it. It's been going on for the last four months. Oil prices have been rising. It has very little input into core inflation. Energy makes up 7% of CPI altogether. It, it's a very minor input. It is not going to change the direction of the Fed in one direction or the other. So don't base your entire thesis around oil prices or of a failure or debt defaults. And again, we, we see this stuff come along. And just remember, just a few, just a few months ago, everybody was panicking, or oh, we're going to default on our debt. And I was telling you, we're not going to default on our debt. We never default on our debt. We always pay our interest payments, right? And guess what? Passed the debt ceiling. We didn't default on our debt. <laughs> you know, we made our interest payments. Everybody got their checks. Again, don't worry about these big macro issues that you have absolutely no control over. Deal with what you can deal with. Don't worry about these end-of-the-world scenarios. Yeah, we got real problems out there. Absolutely. But don't worry about them. Don't spend your time fretting over things that you can do nothing about. What you can do something about is where you're investing, how you're investing, what you're doing with your cash right now. There is an alternative, right? 5% cash. Nothing wrong with it. Not going to last forever. You know, by this time next year, we'll probably won't be talking about 5% cash anymore. But right now, you got 5% cash. Those are things you can control. Where you invest, where you put your money. If you're investing based on some macro thesis that may not mature for 30 years, you're probably going to cause yourself more damage than not. Markets are bullish right now. Yeah, they're having a little bit of a correction lately. Not surprising. We had a huge run at the beginning of the year. We're up 15% in July for the year. That's a 30% annualized rate of return. Markets don't do that. So you have a bit of a correction. Working some of that off. We're still up like 12% for the year right now. And we'll probably finish around this level by the time we get to the end of the year. Not a bad return. If, you're, if your annual return is 6% a year, there's two years worth of return. Now, that was in seven stocks. Mind you, the other 493 stocks have had basically zero return this year. But if you happen to own all seven stocks in your portfolio, you've done great. But again, completely defied where we were last year. Last year, everybody was like, fang stocks are dead. Don't want to own them. Don't want to touch them. Never want to own them again. They're done. This year's best performer. Two years ago. Nobody wants to own oil price, uh, oil oil stocks, right? ESG, blah blah blah. And we were having conversation after conversation after conversation about the sham of uh, and the scam, outright scam of ESG. And we said that as soon as people figure out that money's being made, then 
ESG will lose its flair. This year, we have had the largest shuttering of ESG funds. There's accelerating. BlackRock, others all shuttering down their products. Even BlackRock's walking back on all their ESG religion that they had out there because it's not working. Nobody wants the assets because they don't work. Why? Because energy prices went through the roof and oil stocks went with them. In a year where the market's down 25%, oil stocks are up 40 As we said back then, we said, hey, you know what? Everybody hates energy. And that's probably going to be a good year, a good thing to invest in. And the next year, boom, they, they took the cake. They're not doing too bad this year either. Not, not keeping up with tech stocks, mind you, but this is the way markets work. You know, what's generally most hated in one year becomes the most loved in the next. What is that? So thing to think about. Stop worrying about the macro issues. Think about what everybody hates this year. If it's the most hated asset this year, there's a reasonably good probability that in the next 12 to 18 months, it'll be the most loved. So think about what those things are. That's the better thing to kind of focus on when you think about your money. All right, be back after the break. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so the next big event to come up in regards to the economy, of course, is going to be this government shutdown, which uh, is, is coming up pretty quickly. The ability to spend money ends, or uh, you know, the funding that we do on an annual basis. So the fiscal year of the government runs October 1st through September 30th. So the end of this week, we're going to run out of the fiscal year for Congress. And of course, they've got to supposedly we're supposed to pass a budget, right? We used to actually pass a budget and the the president would, you know, put out his kind of budget idea. This is what I'd love to spend money on. That would go down to Congress. Congress would put together the budget because the because Congress, the House of Representatives, is who controls the purse strings of the economy. They put together the budget, they, they approve it, then it goes to the Senate, they approve it, and then it goes to the president, and he signs off on it, and that's the budget. That's the way it used to work. All the way through George Bush, George W. Bush, the, 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 the younger, that's the way this country used to run, and we had a budget. And that budget would run until the next year. But after President Obama took office, it became really 
kind of a nuisance to pass a budget. And so we started doing this thing called a continuing resolution. And the problem with the continuing resolution is it basically just ejects the whole responsibility of Congress to actually review what we're spending money on, where we're wasting it, etc. And just kind of do this blank check for the government. And what and what this does is is let's say that your spending in year 1 is a trillion dollars just because that's the numbers we deal with these days. And that ends on September 30th, right? On October 1st, basically, you sign this blank check that says, okay, your spending is the same as it was last year to trillion dollars. So you go, well, that's not bad, right? You're spending the same amount of money, except for we do what's called baseline budgeting. So everything gets bumped by 8%. So every year, you're increasing spending. By doing these continuing resolutions, you're, you're increasing spending by 8%. And this is why we continue to get further and further and further into debt. And, and here's the important thing about this. Albert Einstein once said that, uh, and I'm actually writing an article for Tuesday about this because it's one of the, the most misquoted quotes in the financial markets by advisors. Albert Einstein once said that interest is the, you know, compound interest, and interest being the key word, is the eighth wonder of the world. And it's true. If I can make 8% on something every single year the, and I reinvest that 8%, that compound growth doubles my money every nine years. That's the rule of 72. Markets don't work that way. And this is where advisors get it wrong because they, they want to change that to compound markets, right? If you invest in the market, the market averages 8% a year and it compounds. No, it doesn't. You just had a loss year in 2023 that destroys all of your compounding for several years. Markets don't compound. Interest rates compound. Spending compounds when you are adding 8% to it every single year. So just like Albert Einstein said, we're doubling our spending every nine years. And this is why we've gone from $9 trillion in debt to $33 trillion in debt in just the last few administrations. Because we just keep spending more and more and more and more. So this, this inability to manage spending relative to our revenues that we bring. And look, there's nothing wrong with increasing spending. I'm not saying you shouldn't increase spending. The economy grows. We're making more revenue. But we just keep spending more money than, than we've got coming in in revenue. So a budget, right, should be, hey, we've got $5 trillion in revenue. We need to have $5 trillion in spending. That's fine. I'd like to have, you know, $5 trillion in revenue and $4.8 trillion in spending, have a little bit of a surplus. It'd be nice for the next recession when you have it. But that's doable, but it requires work and doesn't mean that everybody gets what they want. You don't get to spend all the money you want to spend. Sorry, this is kind of the way it works. And we have this small handful of people in Washington that are spending money as if it literally grows on trees. 
and it doesn't, and they've just gotten used to this idea that, well, if we don't have it in revenue, we'll just print it. See, and that's easy. So everybody just keeps spending their money that they want to spend. So anyway, but all this is the problem because now we come up on these moments in time where we haven't done the budgeting, we haven't done the work, and here we are heading into the 12th hour, and we're about to have this shutdown occur. And it's going to have an impact on growth. And, and one of the things about the employment numbers this year in particular is that, yes, we've had strong employment numbers, but a lot of those have been government jobs because we're spending a lot of taxpayer dollars, $1.7 trillion infrastructure spending. We're hiring a lot of government workers in that package. So a shutdown of the government would eliminate that hiring and you would have to lay off these non-essential workers. So now they're going to get their money back as soon as we pass whatever it is that we eventually pass, whatever continuing resolution is done, they're going to get their money back. Don't worry, they're not going to be out of any money. But they don't get paid right now. So things get a little tenuous at home and they're going to cut their spending. So that could have an impact on the economy. The cut of government spending on hiring could eat into economic growth. And so initially, if, if the shutdown is short, <clears throat> if the shutdown's 10 to 15 days, then the economic impact is going to be minimal. But the longer it drags on, the bigger the impact to the economy is going to be because of the constriction of spending by government. We, our government spends a lot of money that contributes to GDP. So the longer the government is shut down, there is going to be a drag on economic growth coming from that. So it is the length of time that they are shut down that's important. So, for instance, consider the 35-day shutdown that we had under President Trump. That compromise came quickly. And it came after an air traffic stoppage at New York's LaGuardia Airport when 10 air traffic controllers who weren't being paid failed to show up for work. Again, our congressmen and senators and politicians in general do not have the backbone to stand and fight for long over better functioning government. They cave, and this is why, you know, every time we go through these government shutdowns, we never really resolve anything. Everybody just kind of caves at the end of the day. And no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, they're both caving in, right? They both cave in. They just sign off on a clean resolution, and we just spend more money, right? We don't really get anywhere. But, you know, our, the, you know when you take a look at the impact the loss of consumption from deferred government salaries. And again, there's the, again, they get their money. If Brent makes $1,000 a week and he's laid off for five weeks, when he comes back to work, he gets the five weeks of pay. He doesn't lose any money. Government employees never lose any money. But it's deferred. So there is a potential hit on that deferral of government salaries and other spending, obviously, in there. We, you know, we, we shut down state parks as we talked about before don't when you see the headlines come out and you will oh the government's going to shut down we're you know social security recipients aren't going to get their money and and the military's not going to get paid and 
and we're not going to be able to pay our interest on the debt. Complete hogwash. Those get paid regardless. That's mandatory spending. It gets paid, period, end of story. So your Social Security check will still show up. Where do we have to cut spending? In everywhere else. That's non-mandatory spending. It's called discretionary spending. What is that? That's state parks. That's why we close them down. Oh my gosh, I can't go see Old Faithful. I know, it's terrible. For the couple of months while the government shut down, you can't go to a national park because they're shut down. But there's employees tied to that that are going to be laid off and they are not going to be able to get their pay. That's going to have an impact to economic growth. That could reduce GDP by around 0.05% for each week during the shutdown. So 0.05. Multiply that by four weeks, you get 0.2. So there's your impact to GDP per month. So the next month, it'd be 0.4. The next month, 0.6, So the longer that this continues to drag out, the bigger the potential hit to GDP. The Council of Economic Advisors estimates that under the conditions of a shutdown, GDP downside rises by 0.13% per week if it lasts a longer time. So it could, the government shutdown, I don't want to dismiss it because... If we shut down the government, there is risk to economic growth. There is risk to employment numbers. There is risk to a lot of these things. Now, what your job is, is to figure out in that environment, where's the best place to invest? All right, wrap up the show for today. Be back tomorrow. Figure out what the market's going to do today. A little bit flattish this morning, down a little bit. Uh, again, not surprising after last week's uh, push. Again, we're still on a sell signal, so a little bit more weakness here won't be surprising. Again, 200-day moving average, not out of the question at this point. So, again, might be a little bit sloppy trading today. Uh, get through the rest of this week. Again, the end kind of the sloppy September month. Um, but we'll keep you up to date on it. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow with more of The Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you then.